Footprints of the Messiah, part one. We're just going to talk about the mystery of the Messiah. What do we know about it? And then part two will be how sure can we be? We'll do a probabilistic analysis of some of that. But this is basically going to be a review of the specifications and requirements of the Jewish Messiah as detailed in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh, the Old Testament scriptures. This is an update of a study that we first published back in 92. So it's probably time to refresh it and put it in DVD form and so on. So the first question is about a Bible study. In our question and answer period that preceded this, we didn't have really rough questions, so I thought I'd throw you one. What Bible study is mentioned 12 times in one book of the Bible, was given on seven different occasions by seven different people, and is hardly ever given today? What Bible study was mentioned 12 times in one book by seven different people that's rarely given today? That's the question, gang. I see a lot of puzzled looks on your face. The answer is presenting Jesus as the Messiah of Israel entirely from the Old Testament. How many of you could sit down with a Jewish friend and present Jesus to your Jewish friend entirely from the Old Testament? I don't see many hands up. I see maybe one or two. It was presented by Peter, Stephen, Philip, Paul, Apollos, Aquila, and Priscilla in the book of Acts. In fact, that's seven people, 12 occasions. And uh, Peter's first sermon, Peter's second sermon, Stephen before the Sanhedrin, Philip and the Ethiopian treasurer, Saul preached that way at Damascus, Peter's sermon to the Gentiles, Paul's sermon at Antioch, Paul at Thessalonica, Paul at Corinth, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla at Ephesus and Corinth, and Paul preaches to Agrippa, and then Paul, of course, at Rome. It's interesting, by the way, to notice that never did Paul or Peter preach without mentioning the resurrection of Christ. It's a very interesting observation when we went through Acts the last time. It was was interesting how they never let that go by, even when they're defending themselves against the authorities. He would always rub their nose in it, that the, the, the one that you killed that's risen from the dead. Now, Jesus adds two to this. So we now have the Emmaus Road in the upper room. So where he presented himself from the Old Testament. So that Jesus is eighth, meaning a new beginning. And that makes 14, which is obviously a provocative. Any multiple of seven seems to emerge here. Now, of course, it all starts in a sense at the seat of the woman commitment. In uh, Genesis 3.15, where God declares, after being confronted with the sin of Adam and Eve, announces a plan of redemption that will be dependent upon the seed of a woman. That's a contradiction in biology. The seed comes from the man. But that's one of the titles of the Messiah. And she thus was the mother of all living, not just because she's the mother of all living from the flesh, but she's also the mother of the means by which all flesh would gain life or have it access. Then we get to Genesis 5, the first mention of the gospel. And any introductory group, especially with new people, I love to throw this in because it's usually a surprise in many ways. Uh, Are there hidden messages in the Bible is the question. And I suggest uh, from Proverbs 25, 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. And it's the duty or honor of kings to search out a matter. So there, I want to give you another riddle. You didn't do very well on the first one. Who is the oldest man in the Bible? Anyone? Methuselah. Good for you. Now, uh, he lived 969 years. Yet he died before his father. How can Methuselah be the oldest guy in the Bible, yet he died before his father? Who was his father? Enoch. Very good. You betcha. So, when Enoch was 65, something happened in his life that caused him to walk with God for the next 300 years. It turned out that God gave him a prophecy. There was a judgment of the flood that was coming, and that did not come as a surprise. That was preached on for four generations before Noah. But God told Enoch that as long as his son, apparently that's when he was born, when his son is born, that as long as he's alive, the judgment of the flood would be withheld. And so Enoch names him Methuselah. It comes from two Hebrew roots. Muth, which means his death, 
and shalak, which is a verb which means to bring or send forth. So Methuselah means his death shall bring. It's interesting if you study this carefully that Methuselah was 187 when he had a son by the name of Lamech. And Lamech was 182 when he had a son by the name of Noah, who was a grandson of Methuselah. And it's interesting that we know that Methuselah uh, was 969 when the flood came, the 600th year of Noah. So it's interesting, the year that Methuselah dies is indeed the year the flood came. And I always am amused by this when I think about the, the neighborhood. Every time the kids got a cold, they would panic. If Methuselah got ill, they want to, as long as he's alive, the flood will be withheld. Now, we have no idea what that was like. We can only speculate. But in any case, we have then in Genesis chapter 5 a genealogy. It's one of those chapters you tend to just skip over because what is this? A genealogy of all these strange names. And our problem with Genesis 5 is that the names are not translated. We don't know what the names mean. They are transliterated. In other words, these are approximations about the way they pronounced it. My legal name is Charles. What does it mean? I have no idea. There's a lot of conjectures, but none of them very convincing. In the Hebrew, however, all Hebrew words are built on a three-letter root. And if you really know your Hebrew letters, you know you can almost infer the meaning of the root from the letters. Say a prefix and suffixes, but the three-letter root gives you a clue about the word is, word is all about. The problem with these ten names here is they're not translated for you. So bear with me as we just take a quick look at this. Of the book of generations of Adam, it opens up in the day that God created man and the likeness of God made him. Male and female created thee then and blessed them and called their name Adam. That's Mr. and Mrs. Adam, in other words, in the day they were created. Now, what does the word Adam mean? Adoma means man. Fair enough. Man or mankind, if you will. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son after his own likeness, after his image, and called his name Seth. Now, what does the name Seth mean? Well, it turns out that Eve explains it to you in the previous chapter. Seth means appointed. Eve said in chapter 4, verse 25, For God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So Abel's been killed. The next child, she felt, was appointed to be a replacement. So Seth is a word implying a appointed. Okay. Well, Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. Now, Enosh is a word in the Hebrew which means mortal, frail, or miserable. It comes from the root anash, uh, to be incurable like a wound or grief or sickness or even wickedness. So that's kind of a rough handle to go through school with, right? So he lived 90 years and begot a son by the name of Kenan. Some of your Bibles say Canaan. That's a little misleading because there's a land of Canaan. Kenan Balaam actually does a pun on his name in Numbers and so forth. It's, it's, it's very close. It's very similar. Anyway, the name can mean sorrow, dirge, or elegy. It's a very, very sad word. I imagine that Enosh and Kenan had it with these tough names. Can you imagine going through school with those kind of handles? Hey, miserable, you're on our team. You know, it didn't, somehow it doesn't work. So when he had a son, he says, enough of this. He named him Mahalalel. Now, that's a mouthful, but it's a fabulous name, very uh, different than the previous ones. Mahalalel is two words. Mahal, which means praise or blessed one, and El, the name of God. And so Mahalalel, Mahalalel means the blessed God or the praised God. Okay, so far. Well, he when he has a, ch- a son, he names him Yared. And that comes, that's a, a verb, Yarad, which means shall come down. And there's probably a story behind that, but I'll spare you that for this quick go-through. Yarad has a, uh, lives 162 years, and he begot a guy by the name of Enoch. We've mentioned Enoch earlier, but what does his name mean? And it turns out it's an academic term, meaning commencement or teaching. And uh, we find it, he's an interesting guy because he, he, he's the oldest, it's the oldest prophecy uttered by a prophet in the Bible. You don't find it in the Old Testament, you find it in the New Testament in the book of Jude which makes reference to Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among all of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Sounds like he has a vocabulary problem, for one thing, but that's in the English, okay? 
Now, that prophecy is pretty interesting because it says we, the Lord's coming is sure. We know who will accompany him, and that we know the purpose of his coming and the result of his coming is all embodied in that prophecy of Enoch that we find in the book of Jude. But Enoch was translated, or we would say in the modern vernacular, it was raptured. He was, didn't see death. And that was, he was halfway between Adam and Abraham. Elijah was also translated, and he was halfway between Abraham and Christ, interestingly enough. So these two are well known because they did not see death. They were translated or raptured, if you will. So Enoch lived 65 years and had Methuselah, which we've mentioned already. Enoch was translated that he should not see death, but was not found because God had translated him for before his translation. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Now, this was not a casual stroll. 300 years he walked with God. That means an agreement and surrender to God and as a witness of God. Amos makes a remark about that. That privilege that he had is available to us today, by the way. You have the opportunity to do that if you choose to, to walk with him. But anyway, his son, he names Methuselah, as I mentioned earlier. Now, Methuselah lived 187 years, and he begot Lamech. Now, here's a case where the Jewish root survives in our English language. Now, this root still shows up in our English word lament or lamentation. The word root means, uh, the root meaning is uh, despairing. Well, just bear with me one more here, and then we'll tie it together here. Lamech lived 182 years, and we've got a son called his name Noah. How many of you have heard of Noah? That's about 30%. That's a, you, I, how many of you have heard of Noah? All right, I just want to see if you're away. That's better. That's better. Okay. Now, he even tells you here what the name means, because this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil. And so the name is derived from Naham, which means to bring relief or comfort. And so, okay, here we have ten names that we've gone through. You've got a get little glimpse of what they mean. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Yared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Now, Adam means man, right? Seth is appointed. Enosh, mortal. Kenan, sorrow. Man is appointed mortal sorrow. But the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, whose death? God's death. The blessed God shall come down teaching that his death, God's death, shall bring the despairing comfort or rest. Every time I do this, I get shivers because it's just staggering for me to realize that you have here, tucked away in a genealogy in the Torah, a summary of the Christian gospel. And there's no way you'll ever convince me that a group of Jewish rabbis contrived to hide a summary of the Christian gospel in a genealogy in the Torah. Absolutely not. So I love to use this just to warm up. It tells you, also tells you that God's plan of redemption was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was something planned before the foundation of the world. But this is one of the reasons we say the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. That's where this all becomes clear. But by the way, a friend of ours, one of the members of the Institute, took those same names and same meanings and pointed out that they list the attributes of the Messiah. And it's interesting. Adam is man or mankind, everyone. So it says in the first man, Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 15. Seth means appointed, is fixed in place. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. Enosh means mortal or human, not everlasting but finite, has an ending point. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. Kenan means sorrow, heartbreak, grief, anguish, pain. And Luke 22, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly than his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Wow. That was Dr. Luke describing that phenomenon. Mahalalel, the blessed God, God who is worthy to be honored and worshipped. Well... Romans 9, 5, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all and eternally blessed, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Yared shall come down, will humble oneself, descend to a lower level. And in Philippians 2, we find him being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And Enoch means teaching. Simon Peter answered in John 6, John, Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Then we have Methuselah, his death shall bring. In other words, his death shall mark the beginning of something new. And in Romans 5, 9 again, we have, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Praise God. Lamech means despairing or hopeless. And in Matthew 27 and also Psalm 22, we have about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Noah means rest or comfort, peace of mind or spirit. And of course, he says, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Praise God. Interesting summary, same, same list that uh, Matt Matson emailed me, and I thought that was worth including. That was kind of interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Messiah. He is going, we know he's going to be a great prophet. Uh, he's going to be a faithful priest forever, for Samuel. Psalm 110, speaking of Melchizedek. Uh, thou art my son, uh, Genesis 14, bread and wine and tithes are mentioned there, priest and king, in contrast to Levi and Judah. In Ruth, the four, little four-chapter book, it profiles most of what we understand about the role of a kinsman redeemer, which, of course, it's there to profile our understanding of the Lord, of the Messiah as being our kinsman redeemer. And yet Isaiah is just full of these things. In chapter 9, the prince of peace. Chapter 11, the righteous ruler. 42, the servant ruler. Uh, it would be a sanctuary to some, and uh, the Redeemer, of course. It's all profiled through Isaiah. It's hard just to pick a few. And in Psalm 18, even foreigners shall serve him, it describes. Just a few things. He's clearly going to be in a leadership role. But there's a number of identities that he, he says in Psalm 40, the volume of the book is written of me. And one of your discoveries as you get studying your Bible is to discover that Jesus Christ is on every page on every page of the, of the Old Testament, every page of Genesis, you'll find an allusion to Jesus Christ. And that's what he said. Genesis 4, 9, 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Well, when the Jews lost the right for capital punishment, it's recorded in Josephus, the high priests went around town in sackcloth and ashes because they thought the, that the word of God had been broken because the scepter had departed from Judah. But Shiloh had not come. They didn't realize that up in Nazareth there was a young boy in a carpenter shop. And uh, that's a whole study I encourage you to follow up on. He's going to be the stem of Jesse. We also have this interesting allusion in Isaiah 22 about the keys of David. Quite a bit of mysteries about the keys of David. He's called the branch in Zechariah 3 and also in Zechariah 6. We know he's going to be born where? Bethlehem. Why is he born in Bethlehem? Because it's the city of David. When did Bethlehem become the city of David? The book of Ruth links that all up. So those are non-trivial issues to understand. And the first three verses of Isaiah 61 is his mandate that he reads at the synagogue of Nazareth. And he stops at a comma. And that comma separates that which is going to be reserved for the second coming. And when you study that passage carefully, it causes you to realize that Jesus was a dispensationalist. That comma has lasted 2,000 years. Not one yard or one tittle shall pass from the law. Not the crossing of the T or dotting of an I. And he's, it's a call to taking the Bible seriously. And one of the things I'm hoping you take away from the study is not just a, sort of an overview of the Messiah himself, of course, but also I want you to understand how fruitful it can be to pay attention to the details So we'll go, as we go. Zechariah 9, 9, entry on a donkey that's quoted in Luke 19, what we call the triumphal entry. Angel Gabriel predicted five centuries earlier the exact day that Jesus was going to ride that donkey into Jerusalem. And that's one of the most bulletproof demonstrations that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. And the closure of the East Gate, there's lots of other details. It may it surprises many biblical observers that God has a son. That's exactly what Isaiah 9, 6 says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Those are not synonyms. The child is human, the son is divine. The child is born was in Bethlehem. The son is given was at Golgotha. In Psalm 2, we have the Trinity talking to themselves, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I encourage you to take Psalm 2 and diagram it yourself, who's talking to who where. But one of the passages, Thou art my son, the Father speaking. 
Proverbs 30, the first four verses, most people miss because they don't understand that it seems to be dealing with King Agor. No, it's a title of Solomon, the, the uh, collector. He collected riddles. And in that riddle, as you understand it, you read it, you'll discover it's none other. There's about four or five questions there. They all refer to Jesus Christ. And does God have a son? Yes, it mentions it that there too. And Psalm 91, that you may know my name. And Daniel 11, that the people know their God. And Micah 5, 2, he was born in Bethlehem. But that, that famous verse, Micah 5, 2, also, not only does it say he was born in Bethlehem, it describes his pre-existence from everlasting to everlasting. Now, that gets us into family trees. Clearly, the family tree starts in Genesis 22 with Abraham. And that family, the Messiah, starts there, and we'll come back to that later. Then to Isaac, then to Jacob. That is the family tree. Not Ishmael, Isaac. The militants of Islam would try to teach you differently. They're wrong. Clearly, God confirmed it to Isaac and then to his son, Jacob. And then we get to 49, this Judah, the scepter shall not depart, and so forth. When you get to the book of Ruth, you discover that Bethlehem becomes the city of David. That becomes very important later. We'll touch about that here in a few minutes. But in 2 Samuel 7 is one of the unconditional promises in the Bible. We have the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional, that's Genesis 12. You have the land covenant, that God giving the land to Abram and his descendants. And that's in Genesis 15 and 17. And then you get to the third of the unconditional covenants, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel, where God makes a promise to David and his descendants for, an, for a kingdom that will never end. When Gabriel appears to Mary in the New Testament, Gabriel promises that her child will sit on the throne of David. That did not exist in the Roman period. Does that mean he's going to? Absolutely. When? Yet to come. He's going to rule on the earth on the throne of David. He's going to be the stem of Jesse. He'll have the keys of David. And both Zechariah 3 and 6 refers to him as the branch, the netzer. It's a, almost a pun on the word Nazarene. We're going to talk a little more about puns before the day is over. Now, I want you to be aware of the fact that there's two genealogies in the Scripture that are complementary. Matthew and Luke each have a genealogy. Matthew goes through the royal line down to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. And in the first 17 verses of Matthew, he makes the case that Jesus had the legal title to the throne of David. Matthew makes a big thing of that. Now, the reason that's so earth-shaking to us is the throne of David is yet to be taken by Jesus Christ. That's forthcoming yet. Matthew starts with Abraham, as any Jew would, he starts with Abraham Abram, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Pharaoh's right on down through to David. And after David, he goes through the first surviving son of Bathsheba, Solomon. Then down, of course, he, go all the way to, he follows that right on through to Joseph, who is the legal father of Jesus Christ. You with me so far? Okay. The problem is that the, royal, the Messiah has got to come from the royal line, which would be from the tribe of Judah. That's from Genesis 49. The Messiah would be from the line of David in Ruth 4 and 2 Samuel 7 and so forth. Now, the succession of the kings of Judah proved to be, with only a few exceptions, the mo a dismal chain. The northern kingdom went from bad to worse. The southern kingdom also went from bad. There's a couple of minor exceptions, but they, in, ge in general, it was a pretty dismal line. You finally get down to a guy by the name of Jeconiah, who's also called Jehoiakim, James guy. Jehoiachin, I should say, who was so bad that God finally pronounced a blood curse on him. You find this in Jeremiah 22. Get the picture. God has pronounced he's really upset with Jeconiah, who's the last of the Davidic line to have the kingship. Thus saith the Lord God, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper sitting upon the throne of David or ruling any more in Judah. And whenever I read this, I could always visualize there must have been a celebration in the councils of Satan because they must have felt that God has stepped on his own foot here because the Messiah has to come from the line, from the line of David and now the line, the line of David has a blood curse on the successors. And I always visualize God turning to the angel and saying, watch this one. Okay. How can a Messiah come from a royal line if there's a blood curse on the royal line? Luke, in his genealogy, solves this problem for us. Matthew went through from Solomon from the first surviving son of Bathsheba. And uh, when you get down to Jehoiachin, of course, he's got the blood curse. That blood curse continues right on down 
to Joseph. But Jesus was not of the bloodline of Joseph. He was his legal father, but not his blood father. The legal father of Jesus Christ, but Jesus was not of Joseph's blood. Key point here so far. Are you with me? Okay. Now, Luke takes a little different from Adam, the first ten. We studied that when we opened up here with Adam down to Noah. We went through that first ten. Uh, then he continues right on through to David. And from, uh, from Abraham to David, they're obviously both identical. Okay, so far. But when Luke gets to David, he takes a, a strange turn here. Let before, let's pause for a minute. Why is there a virgin birth? We see that predicted in Genesis 3, confirmed by Isaiah and Isaiah 7. Why do we have to, There are a lot of theological reasons, but one simple reason is to provide a way around the blood curse in Jeconiah. Mary, having married within the tribe, carries the inheritance. Heli would have adopted Joseph as his son-in-law. Why? Because there is an exception in the Torah provided for the daughters of Zelophehad. A little incident occurs back there in which Zelophehad goes to Moses. And he has only five daughters, no sons. He says, what are you going to do about inheritance? And so Moses goes to the Lord, prays about it. The Lord tells Moses to make an exception. So in the Torah, it provides that if there's no sons and the daughter marries within the tribe, the father of the bride adopts the husband as his son, a son-in-law, what we would call a son-in-law. It provides for inheritance to the daughter if no sons are available and she married within the tribe. That's all through the scripture, by the way. By tradition, the father would legally adopt his son-in-law in such cases. And there's examples of that in the text. We discover from this example, but there's hundreds of others, Every detail in the scripture is deliberate. You can't find, I challenge you to find something in the text that isn't there deliberately and relevant in some way. And by the way, it'll always ultimately point to Jesus Christ. So anytime you find something that seems unnecessary or self-contradictory, make a note of it, keep a log of it, check it out, and you'll discover in your studies that it's going to point you to Jesus Christ. Well, Luke, as I say, went from Abraham to David. But it, when he gets to David, Luke does a strange thing. He doesn't go through Solomon. He goes through the second surviving son of Bathsheba, a guy by the name of Nathan. Don't confuse him with Nathan the prophet. They both happen to have that name. And he continues through and comes down to Heli, who is the father of Mary. And Heli becomes the father-in-law, if you will. In Luke 3, verse 23, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. But the son of Heli is nomitso in the Greek, reckoned as by law. Joseph was the son-in-law of Heli. So Matthew's genealogy goes from top down. Luke's goes, he does the same thing, but he goes in the other direction. He lays out his genealogy in climactic order because God is at the, the climax, Adam being a son of God. Adam, as were the angels, was a direct creation of God. That term in the Old Testament is Benai Ha Elohim, and it is a term used of direct creations, and therefore it refers to angels typically because they were created before the earth was. Adam was a direct creation of God. He was a son of God. We are sons of Adam in, in the, in, by nature. Unless we, 1 John 1.11, he came into his own, his own Jews, that is, and they received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he what? The power to become the sons of God. That's why we call it a new birth. You're actually a new creation, a new creature. But let's get back a minute. Why did Samuel appoint a Benjamite to kingship rather than one from the tribe of Judah? Samuel was a priest right after the time of the judges and so forth. He's the bridge between the judges and the, and the monarchy. And his first king is Saul, Saul. King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. How can Samuel appoint a king it's a Benjamin. I thought the scripture made it clear that Judah was the royal line. That's your, that's your test question today. I'll leave that with you to figure out after we go to do a talk about the book of Ruth. I wish we had the time to get, it's the most charming study in the Bible, four chapter book, but we'll take it just quickly. It's full of some interesting paradoxes. Judah was the royal tribe. How could Samuel anoint Solomon from the tribe of Benjamin? Because David wasn't ready yet. David was prophesied in the day of Judges. There's not, most people don't know that. I'll show you where you get that. How could Moaz, Boaz marry Moabite? That's against the law. 
What the law could not do, grace did. Law legally forbid intermarriage in Deuteronomy 7. You have to understand who Boaz's mother was, by the way. It forbade intermarriage, especially to a Moabite in Deuteronomy 23. Boaz's mother was Rahab the harlot, an Emorite. It doesn't justify, but it gives you some background that he was able to make that bridge. The law shut Ruth out, but grace took her in. The prophetic points of the book of Ruth are phenomenal. Boaz turns out to be a type of the kinsman redeemer. We need to understand that. Most of what we uh, understand comes from studying that book. Naomi uh, is the, a type of Israel. She was dis- out of her land. She comes back, and through the, the interaction of the kinsman redeemer, she gets her land back. Ruth, the Gentile, is taken as a wife. So Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, return, gets Naomi returned to her land and takes a Gentile bride. So it's just full of uh, perspective out of it. It's interesting that Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. Ruth learns the ways from Naomi. And that's extremely provocative. I'll let you think that through. Naomi being a type of Israel and Ruth a type of the church. Ruth is at the feet of Boaz during the thrashing floor scene, and that's a whole study in itself. But near the end of the book, there's a very strange, what looks to us like a marriage toast. It's really a prophecy. Boaz has succeeded in clearing the deck to have Ruth be his wife, and there's a, there's a big celebration, and they pray that he be, they be famous in Bethlehem, that their house should be like Perez. And if you understand Perez, you'd say, same to you, fella. There's a strange uh, allusion here. Well, Perez was illegitimate. And a bastard is illegitimate for inheritance until the 10th generation from Deuteronomy 23. The genealogy at the end of the book of Ruth shows David at the 10th generation. The reason that Saul was appointed because David wasn't ready yet. This is the way the book of Ruth closes. These are the generation of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Minadab, Minadab begot Nasha, Nasha begot Solomon, Solomon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So the, the book of Ruth is what ties the house of David to Bethlehem. At Christmas time, when you see the shepherds in the field and all that, we celebrate that sort of thing. You need to realize that the shepherds were probably in the fields that belonged originally to Boaz and Ruth. And that should help you tie it all together. But I, I want to go forward. See, Perez was illegitimate son of Judah and Tamar, and he can't inherit for ten generations. You count ten generations, that makes David eligible. So you begin to see tapestry here. You see the design. There's a master designer in charge of the whole thing. Genesis begins with the story of Joseph in Genesis 37. The book of Genesis from 37 to the end is the most incredibly exciting reading novel you can imagine. The whole career of Joseph is breathtaking. And from chapter 37 to 50, it's just this saga of Joseph. Incredible story in every dimension. Right in the early part of that, in Genesis 38, we encounter what some people regard as the most sordid episode in the Bible. Many people think it shouldn't even be there. Where Judah is tricked into having sex with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, which gives birth to two sons out of wedlock. Judah has a son, has a daughter-in-law. The son dies. By law, he was supposed to provide her another son. Several of his sons had died suddenly. He didn't want to risk any more. And so he didn't provide a, a husband for Tamar. So Tamar poses as a prostitute out in the field, tricks him into having sex with her, and when he discovers that Tamar is pregnant, and then he realizes by confronting with the evidence that it was his child, he, did, he, he didn't realize it, he admits that his sin was bigger than hers by not providing a, a husband to her. But that the offspring of that sordid story, one of the two is Pharaoh's. And so... Why is it recorded here? For a couple of reasons, one of which, of course, well, for the Messianic mind. But I want to show you Genesis 38 in the Hebrew. Now, remember that Hebrew goes from right to left. All languages flow towards Jerusalem. All nations east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Hebrew, Aramaic, Arabic, Sanskrit, you name it. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Latin, English, all the derivatives, Cyrillic, Greek, all go left to right. Well, so you need to, these, these sentences go from right to left here. Now, it turns out at 49 letter intervals, you find a three letter connection which speaks of, translates into Boaz. Well, that's pretty interesting. 
you count another 49-letter triplet, and it's Ruth. That's kind of curious, Boaz and Ruth. You go through this a little further, in 49-letter intervals, you discover the name of Obed. Really? And then you go a little further, and you take 49-letter intervals again, and it's Yishai, that we, as we would say, Jesse. And then you got another three, triplet of 49 letters, that's David. Let's put this together. You've got Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David. And these are all in 49-letter intervals in um, chronological order. And that, the, the probability of that happening by accident is absurd, obviously. And this was penned by Moses before any of them were born. This is in the Torah. I find that kind of provocative. Okay. Now, the Messiah has the most distinguished family tree in history. It was encrypted in the Torah, as I've just shown you. It was prophesied in the Judges in the book of Ruth. It evades the blood curse on Jeconiah and Jeremiah 22. And what makes this all work is the virgin birth that was predicted in Genesis chapter 3, confirmed by Isaiah in chapter 7, and also echoes in Psalm 69 and Psalm 110. So that's kind of fun. I thought you'd like to see that. Now, the Messiah has this distinguished family tree, but he's also scheduled to be executed. Many people are shocked to discover that. In Daniel chapter 9, one of the key events is that the Messiah is to be cut off, karat, executed, when prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. If you want a candidate for the Messiah, it has to be somebody that meets these conditions and was executed before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And we've got a very promising candidate. Back in Genesis 22, Abraham is asked to act out a prophecy to offer his son. And 2,000 years later, on that same spot, another father does offer his son. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. He names the place prophetically. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. That whole study deserves a full hour. I won't try to summarize it here. When you get to Isaiah 52 and 53, you discover why he suffered. You've got 12 verses there that summarize the death of Christ more completely than all of Paul's epistles put together, in effect. And in Isaiah 49, Zechariah 12, we see references to his nail prints. We find out that his beard was ripped out in Isaiah 56. And there's things in the Old Testament that you never see in a movie. Psalm 22, from the cross. Psalm 22 reads as if it was dictated while he hung on the cross. It was written 700 years before crucifixion was invented. But it has his first words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And his last words, it is finished or paid in full. In Zechariah 11, we find he's betrayed by 30 pieces of silver that it ultimately lands in the, in the hands of the potter and the entire transaction occurred in the temple, in the house of the Lord. Incredible detail written centuries before the fact. When he comes back, he says in Zechariah 12, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And indeed, he will be coming. He will say he has wounds in his hands and so forth. You know, it's interesting, for over 40 years, the Hebrew scholars have been withholding a large number of Dead Sea Scrolls from the academic community, as you may know. Finally, having been pressured for the release, recent announcements now make it clear why these additional documents from before 68 AD, really early, were withheld. They make reference to a suffering Messiah whose hands and feet were pierced, who suffered and died for the sins of the people. Those are the Dead Sea Scrolls in that first, in, within that first century. Apparently, those living in the famous Jewish community at Qumran were believers, at least some of them were. Provocative indeed. It's interesting how Satan's strategy has always been against all of this. His repeated attempts to eradicate the Messianic line is what led to the Noah's flood. From Cain and Abel, the slaughter of the infants to Egypt, the repeated attempts to interrupt the whole line, even to the slaughter of the babies in Bethlehem, Satan has been trying to thwart God's plan. There's a summary of all of this, and Revelation 12 is a, a summary of the whole thing. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, to be born in Bethlehem, named Yeshua Salvation, and he said he, he, he is who he said he was. He, in John 8, he claimed to be the voice of the burning bush in the Bible. In Luke 1, he's going to establish the throne of David. He's coming back on the earth to rule. And uh, they shall look upon me and be pierced. 
Now, it's interesting, Paul defines the gospel in first, the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. He's defining the gospel here. Let's take a look. We use that term so loosely, the gospel. What do we mean by the gospel? You may be surprised to discover Paul makes no reference to his teachings, no reference to his miracles, no reference to his example. What is the gospel? He defines it here. Paul says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Period. That's the gospel. Three things. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He didn't just disappear. It's the most documented death in the history of man. And he died fulfilling all kinds of specifications. Not a bone was broken and so forth and so on. Hundreds of details. How that Christ died for sins according to the Scriptures. That's the first point. That he was buried. Only Paul emphasized that because he builds a whole teaching about baptism on that. That he was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now is your next challenge. This is for credit, okay? He rose on the third day. Really? Well, that's interesting. But Paul is talking, he says, according to the Scriptures. The Scriptures here refers to the Old Testament. It hasn't, you know, we're not talking about the New Testament. It hasn't been codified yet. This is the Old Testament. Apparently, in the Old Testament, it expresses and maybe even and, and hints, whatever, that he rose again the third day. How many places do you think you could find in the Old Testament that makes a reference, an allusion to the three day, three days in the tomb? How many? Good guess. Good guess. Seven's always a safe guess. The first one is obvious because Jesus himself calls our attention to it in Matthew 12. For as Jonas was, th- was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Then certain scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of prophet Jonas. And that's where he puts that verse we just read. Three days, Christ the tomb. Where do we find it? Well, in the Old Testament, Abraham was, Isaac was dead to him for three days, we learn. When the commandment came, he was dead to Abraham. The writer of Hebrews points that out. He was restored to him at, at the action when, when there was a restoration there. But those three days, or Isaac, the son, was dead to him three days. Joseph has dreams in prison in, in Genesis 40. In each case, there's a three-day interval that's definitive. Esther, when she's challenged, fasts for three days. Jonah and the fish we've just mentioned. The nation of Israel asks Jesus to return. He, when, they, when the nation petitions him to come back, three days in the second coming takes place. That's all in the first, second verse of Hosea 6. And then there's a couple of others I want to talk about here. But before I do, I want to ask you a couple of test questions here. What's a kilobyte, anybody? What is a kilobyte? Anyone? A thousand bytes, good for you, okay. What is a megabyte? A thousand kilobytes, good for you. What is a gigabyte? A thousand megabytes, good for you. Okay, here's the, what's a moabyte? What's a moabyte? It's a lot. Oh, you got it. That's what we call as a rhetorical device, a pun. We usually use puns in humor. But it may surprise you to learn that the Holy Spirit uses puns throughout the Bible. That's why it's so important to be very precise in your exegesis, what the text really says. Because you may miss something the Holy Spirit has for you. Obviously, I'm playing on a pun here because Moabite was a son of Lot, so he's a lot. And uh, in the context I set you up, of course, I'm just playing with you there. But uh, let's take a look at Psalm 22.6. In Psalm 22.6, Jesus is pictured as hanging on the cross, and he says, I am a worm and no man. 
And the word there in the Hebrew is tola. Now, what is tola? Tola off is a scarlet worm. That's where they get scarlet dye from. Sermus vermilio. It's a scale insect which feeds upon an oak and which is used for producing red dye. The female tola, when it reproduces, climbs to a branch of a tree and bears its eggs on it. And when the eggs hatch and become larvae, they eat the body of the mother worm. Now, even that sounds like John 6, by the way. The worm dies, of course, in the process. And a crimson spot is left on the branch of the tree. You with me so far? This is where they get red dye, collecting from these things. After three days, the scarlet crimson spot dries out and changes color to a snow-white color and falls off and flakes away. Now, does that remind you of Isaiah 118? Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And the word crimson there, of course, is tola. Interesting. Let me give you another example that's perhaps a little more obscure, just to make, I think it's kind of fun. Just to remind you, 1 Corinthians 15, I declare to you the gospel, I preach unto you that Christ died for sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and they rose again the third day. There we are again. The gospel, third day according to the scriptures. You're going to shift now to the home of Rahab the harlot. Joshua sent spies out. When his 40 years earlier, Moses sent out 12 and 10 were useless. When Joshua comes 40 years later, he sends out two. <laughs> okay, that's all he needed the first time. And they, of course, find uh, refuge in the home of Rahab, who li- who's, lives on the wall. They're going to start searching for them. So she's, she said, then she let them down by a cord through the window, for her house was upon the town wall, and she dwelt upon the wall. You all remember the story. Okay. The word cord that she uses is the Hebrew word hebel. And the word hebel means a rope or cord, obviously. But it's also a word that can mean pain, sorrow, or travail in a totally different usage, obviously. What they do, they respond to her. She's going to let them down by that cord. So they respond in verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window which thou didst let us down by. And thou shalt bring thy father, thy mother, and thy brethren, and all thy father's household home unto thee. In other words, for taking care of them and helping them slip away, take that cord and mark your window, and when we take the city, we'll protect you and your family, give you you know, sanctuary for helping us. You get the picture? Okay. Well, this line of scarlet thread, they don't use the word hebel. They use another word, tikva which can mean line or cord, by the way, obviously. But you may not realize that tikva has another meaning altogether. It's hope or expectation. The national anthem of Israel is ha-tikva, the the hope. Ha-tikva. Two different words, both mean cord. Between those verses, we went from 15 to 18, verse 16, between those, she says unto them, get you to the mountain. Don't go straight home, in other words. Go hide in the hills. Get you to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. And hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers be returned. And afterward, may ye go your way. That's her advice. That's her counsel. Okay? Three days. Kebel can mean pain, sorrow, or travail. Tikva can mean hope or expectation. There's three days between the Kebel and the Tikva. The cross and the empty tomb are separated by three days. Did Rahab know that? I don't think so. I may be misjudging it. Why didn't she say two days or four days or a few days? She said three. Why three? I don't know. Was that the Holy Spirit intruding so that this model fits? That's what I think he intended when Moses struck the rock at Meribah. And 40 years later at Rephidim, he was supposed to speak to the rock, and he got mad, he, he hit it again, and God says, you're in the penalty. He, he didn't inherit for that mistake. Why? Because he, mis, he misrepresented God to the people. He was, God wasn't mad at them. That's the impression Moses gave them. But he also punctured the model. 
because the two yields of water would have been struck the first time and not the second. It would have modeled the first and second coming. Anyway, for what it's worth. One last thing, and we'll wrap it up here. I'd like to take a quick look at Psalm 69. Most of us have studied or are aware of the suffering of Christ on the cross. Mel Gibson's movie, I think, addresses some of that. There's been other attempts. But you may not realize that the childhood of Christ is alluded to in the Psalms. Most people don't realize this. Psalm 69 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament for other reasons. There's some other things in it, and I won't get into that here because they overlook the little thing in the front. In Psalm 69, verse 8, he says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. What a strange expression. Not his father's children, his mother's children. What is that? Mary had other children, which confirms the record in the Gospels. He'd become an alien to his mother's children, not his father's children, because Joseph was not his father. They were half-brothers and half-sisters. It may have been a very unhappy home. Can you imagine the child growing up in a small village where everybody believed he, he was illegitimate? Can you picture that? That Jewish culture in the first place? A small town with its attributes? Can you imagine growing up, not just for Mary, tough on her, can you imagine as a kid coming home from school and And the kid's making fun of him. He doesn't know who his father is. Nobody knows who his father is. But this verse also teaches the virgin birth of Christ, interestingly enough. In both Matthew 13 and Mark 6, 3, we have the names of of his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he also has sisters in the plural, so he knows at least two sisters, maybe more. We don't know. He continues here in Psalm 16, When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, it was to my reproach. When he was pious, when he was doing proper things, they made fun of him. Can you imagine that? I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. I'm going to suggest it was a very, very unhappy childhood family. In John 8, when he's confronted with the Pharisees, they say, we were not born of fornication. In other words, that stigma of being a bastard during his childhood years, through his impressionable teen years, all the way into manhood, even when he's confronted with the lawyers of his day, they throw that in his face in John 8. In a few more verses, he tells them about their parenthood and doesn't, he takes off the gloves, right? But in Psalm 69, he makes another remark. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. The drunkards down at the local tavern made up songs about him being illegitimate. You know, we, we obviously are aware of the pain on the cross. I mean, we have some grasp of crucifixion. We know enough. the American Medical Association even has publications that describe the cause of death, one of the most agonizing, painful forms of execution ever invented by man. We had a lot of exposure to that. But I think... There are 33 years of pain and agony that he endured that we don't normally think of. The drunkards at the local bar made up dirty little ditties about him and his mother. Why did he endure all of that? I'm not talking about a few hours of the cross. I'm talking about 30 years of his life. He was raised in a town where he was called illegitimate in order that I might be a legitimate son of God. The son of God bore that for me on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sins. And I suspect you and I have no idea what he endured for 30 years. In order that we might have a clear title as a legitimate son of God. That's what he did. Boy, there's so many ways we could wrap this up. There's so many ways... I think the primary focus in our life from morning till night every day should be to somehow grow an understanding of who he is and what he did for us. There are many other things that command our priorities, many other things that command our attention. But this is a time, I think, that we all need to re-examine our allegiances. 
Many people ask me, uh, with all the present tensions in the country, and because of my deep roots in the strategic arena, uh, how I react to certain things, and I have to be candid with you. I've come to a point in my life where I look back at my my childhood. I was Boy Scouts, it was God and country. You didn't have to choose between them. And my recent involvements with my 50th reunion at the Naval Academy and I passed on the 55th this year because I had other pressures to deal with that were more, in my mind, much more relevant and pressing. But the point I'm getting at is I no longer look at my patriotism as anything other than an obsolete form of idol worship. It's something I feel, at least in my world, I've outgrown. I'm not disparaging those that are giving of themselves for their community or for their state or for their nation. But I do know that nationalism and patriotism, as we, as I used to think of it, is dangerous if it competes with my primary allegiance. You see, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I think they're both corrupt. I'm a monarchist. I serve a coming king. And I try to start and finish each day in his arms, trying to find out what he would have of whatever's confronting me at the moment. I think... He is indeed a Messiah. He is indeed the promised one. He is indeed the one that we all long to be with. And I think what we need to do is come to a point in our lives where we prioritize all our other priorities subordinate to that one. How many of you are saved? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. How many of you know your calling? That's pretty good. That's better than most, that's a higher percentage of most audiences, but it's obviously pretty meager, isn't it? Many of you didn't have your hands up which I assume means you haven't discovered yet what you're called to do. I think when I ask you, are you saved, the question is why? Why were you saved? Well, there's a collective reason to magnify uh, the name of God and so forth. All kinds of collective reasons, no question about it. But I think there's also a very personal, individual one. When God started thinking of you, was before the foundation of the world. That's a concept that we hard getting your mind around. And he has a destiny for you. And the great challenge in life is to discover what that is. And I encourage you to pursue that diligently. Find out what it is he would have you do in the days ahead. I hope along the way as you evaluate your alternatives, you will consider the Institute. We now have members in 71 countries growing. Dan, the executive director, and I have a friendly little tension. He emphasized that it's for anybody. Anybody's welcome. Everybody, we have all kinds. Every parameter you can think of is stretched by the membership commonwealth that's involved. Young, old, rich, poor, brilliant, not so brilliant, all kinds. And Dan would endorse, if he was up here, he would articulate that much better than I can. does a great job. I have a little different perspective. Because I think it's for those that take the Bible seriously. All my life, that's been my passion. To find out more, to dig further. What excites me is the the segment of the Institute of people that are just really, really serious about the, the Word of God. And it's a place where they can find fellowship. It's a place where they can exchange. And uh, it seems to fit that requirement in a very unique way. And so I'll leave you to pray that through. Get a copy of the handbook. Look it through. If you can't find one, it's, you, doubt, you can download it free of charge off the website. Find out what it is and pray about it. See if it's for you. And with that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for our being right here for such a time as this. We thank you, Father, for the horizon that we see. We thank you that for the harvest that seems to be ready. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be equipped to be effective in this harvest. We recognize, Father, that there's turbulence that's unprecedented, that's forthcoming. But in that, there is a harvest for the kingdom. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, we might be pleasing and effective in your sight, that we might be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us. As we each commit ourselves into your hands in the name of our Messiah, in the name of our coming King, in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Yeshua HaMashiach, indeed. Amen. 